you've been an operator, you've sold a company to a public one. I need somebody with your brain, but also your heart because I'm struggling personally as well. So I finally said yes. And that was about a year ago. And I now have like seven CEOs that I coach. And I find that's also a way to be in service and not one you'd expect. You'd think I'm going to be planting trees or as I mentioned before, attending to the sick and dying at their bedside. But it turns out CEOs have so much leverage and they can do so much damage if they're not uh, operating consciously. So I set that out as one other way that I would be in service. And there are a bunch of others, but yeah, that's, uh, you can hear some of my values in there, but a life of service is certainly at the core. Life of service, coaching CEOs, executives currently. What, (laughs) I know this is so timely that we're speaking right now. If you were to coach Elon Musk, what would you, how would you coach him? Welcome to Worthy for 30, a podcast hosted by Eric Tash. Eric is a brand marketer who spent time in both the startup and corporate worlds. Throughout his career, he's come across remarkable leaders who've set clear examples for how to do good and give back. Eric sits down with some of the most sought after entrepreneurs and C-suite executives to discuss how they're able to unlock deeper meaning in their work by infusing their core fundamental values. Worthy for 30, where doing good and doing well meet. Welcome to another episode of Worthy for 30. I am grateful to have Peter Corbett in or on the show, excuse me, in the company of of the listeners. Uh, Peter and I worked at a previous job, if you will, when I was at Prestige Brands. I was leading digital marketing with uh, Albert Wong and Mark Carlin, people that I imagine I've mentioned to listeners. And Peter was the CEO and founder of iStrategy Labs, which is based or was based in Washington, D.C. So, Peter, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. Excellent. So, Peter, would love for you to bring the listeners up to speed on your path to founding iStrategy Labs. Sure. I grew up as a programmer. I started programming maybe 1991. I was 11 or 12 years old. Then I became a designer when I was in college and went to business school, undergrad. So that combination of technology, creativity, and strategy is really um, what iStrategy Labs became. I ended up working as a TV producer and for a couple ad agencies and got laid off. Mm-hmm. So I got laid off on a Friday. I started that agency on a Monday and for nine years built it brick by brick. Had about 100 employees when I ultimately sold it to a publicly traded company called WPP. And we had worked for 35 Fortune 500 brands. And at the time when I sold it was the social agency records for Volkswagen, Kroger, Sam Adams, and a whole, and working with a lot of the prestige brands, the Dramamines and the Monostats of the world, all the OTC stuff we love. So yeah, that was, that's the journey in a nutshell. Okay. So you had this tech product background, you were laid off, you're saying, okay, what's next for me? That culminated into founding this agency that grew into this, again, large agency working with some pretty remarkable clients, Volkswagen, Prestige Brands, of course. And then you sold it. When did, when was iStrategy Labs? Six years ago. Six years ago. Wow. So 2016. And then from the exit, so you sold iStrategy Labs to WPP. It was absorbed into, I think, J. Walter Thompson. That's right. And you left the agency. What was your next move after post mm-hmm. ISL or iStrategy Labs? 
Yeah, pretty atypical move, probably. I sold six years ago. I retired. That's what I said. Retired from the marketing business four years ago. DJ Saul took over as CEO of iStrategy Labs. And my next move was to try to figure out who the heck I was, which is weird to say. I was 36. You would think I would know who I was. And I had been very successful and not famous, but very well known in our own industry. And it turned out that I knew I wasn't just a marketing guy or I wasn't just an agency guy, but I didn't really know what else. So I went into a period of intensive meditation, cold exposure in Poland and Iceland with an acolyte of Wim Hof, if any of you are interested in breath work and cold immersion, did a two-week survival course in the desert. And essentially for the next two years, oh, and did a nine-month training program in hospice and worked with over 100 sick and dying people at the Brooklyn Hospital Center. And through the course of that process, I was just trying to come back to a blank canvas, you know, that being on stage, essentially, literally and figuratively as a CEO of an award-winning agency puts all sorts of ideas in your head about who you are. And I was able to break down that ego to something more elemental and therefore I could move forward in my life into the next chapter. So that's, that was the next step. The next step was basically simplifying uh, dramatically, even though now I had a vast amount of wealth and I could get really complicated if I wanted to. I, I chose to go simpler. Chose to go simpler. You really tried to understand who you were. It sounded like you tried to reduce yourself to the studs of what may tick. What is my North Star? What is my purpose? Mm-hmm. What are my values? Can you articulate what your core fundamental values are? Yeah. I love that way you put it, that kind of breaking it down to the studs. It was a gut renovation. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so I'm a Zen practitioner and in Zen, we say replacing the marrow of our very bones. So think about that as a renovation. I searched high and low, did all those things I mentioned. And what I came to was there literally was no purpose to life whatsoever, except to be in service to others. I couldn't figure out anything else worth doing. Had all the money that I would ever need in this lifetime and multiple lifetimes. I had all the accolades and all the trophies and all the press and all the everything that I could really ever want. And I was a young guy. So what do I do? Do I go get more money? That's ridiculous. I already proved to myself that I could be a successful entrepreneur, which was something I wanted to prove to myself growing up. So being in service ended up being the thing. And so then the question becomes, well, how? The hospice work is one way how. That's a very intense and wonderful way how. But there are others. And so in order to get that, I had to try to see, do I have some kind of either inherent gifts Or are there gifts that I can further develop that I can offer to the world in service? And so it turned out that, God, everybody kept coming to me saying, Peter, can you help me with this new company? Can you either invest in it or advise it? Or can you mentor me? Can you coach me? And I, and I would just in a lightweight way say, I'm always available, happy to chat, but I don't want to do anything formally. So for, I think four years, I didn't let anyone engage me in anything so formal. And finally, a friend of mine, who has got an $8 billion company said, I really need you to coach me. Like, we're going to sell this thing. You've been an operator. You've sold a company to a public one. I need somebody with your brain, but also your heart because I'm struggling personally as well. So I finally said yes. And that was about a year ago. And I now have, I think, seven CEOs that I coach. And I find that's also a way to be in service. And Not one you'd expect. You'd think I'm going to be planting trees or, as I mentioned before, attending to the sick and dying at their bedside. Mm -hmm. But it turns out CEOs have so much leverage and they can do so much damage if they're not 
uh, operating consciously. So I set that out as one other way that I would be in service. And there are a bunch of others, but yeah, that's, uh, you can hear some of my values in there, but a life of service is certainly at the core. Life of service, coaching CEOs, executives currently. What, (laughs) I know this is so timely that we're speaking right now. If you were to coach Elon Musk, what would you, how would you coach him? Yeah, coach him the same way I coach everybody. And some people have coaching frameworks, 15 commitment to conscious leadership or presence-based coaching. There's a whole bunch of them. So I don't have one. Uh, It turns out that all I need to do is stay with my own Zen practice. And what that means, if you're not familiar with Zen, Zen is always endeavoring to bring what is dual, like separate things, like Peter and Eric are separate people and try to reunify them. Because the closer we look, in fact, everything is entirely entangled and intertwined. So when I'm listening to someone, so I start with just like really deeply listening to a person, Elon, for example, and starting to hear where the divisions are. And that's where there's already an error. There's already a problem when we've got divisions that are being created. So I would listen that way. I might hear something that delusional is a strong word, but we're under our own illusions. We think things are the way that they are when, in fact, we're just telling ourselves a story. So I would listen to the story that Elon is telling himself. I'd reflect those to him, ask him if they're true and keep asking. And often our reflex is, yeah, it's true that free speech is being limited. Or is it true that Twitter is, in fact, the public town square? And I would say, that's so funny you say that because it's private, Elon. It's private. What a po- You're saying it, but it's a private town square. So try to find the places where we're telling stories that are not true. And that's often a great opportunity for growth for an executive. And what are some of the, going back to your putting your marketing hat on and thinking about OKRs and KPIs, like what does Mm. success look like for a coaching client? Ultimately that they don't need my help anymore. The KPIs, (laughs) are they no longer actually engaged in some way coaching with me? It means that they got everything that they could get and needed to get. And there could be either someone else that has a different kind of experience or a different approach that now would be useful to them, or they just chomped through the problems that they were going after. Now they've got some years of runway and dislodged some of the blockers that are facing them. Um, that, so that's the biggest, I think, overarching KPI. Under that, there's a whole bunch of sub bullets. People have an interest in becoming more mindful in their leadership developing the ability to listen more deeply, practice nonviolent communication. So there's all sorts of things, frankly, just becoming less conflict avoidant and making the hard calls they need to make, laying people off. Apparently, Elon does not have that problem, does not seem conflict avoidant in any way. No, especially when he's signing his emails, thanks Twitter, which which really hardens the blow to half of your workforce that you're letting go. Sticking with being of service and going back to your days at ISL and building ISL, Mm -hmm. one thing, you know, that that caught my attention was, and I think perhaps it started, your being of service started to manifest is the DC tech meetup, building that to, I think, 25,000 people strong, being on stage, speaking to audiences. We'd love to understand, like, using the DC tech meetup as as an example, and there are probably other examples you can cite, on why it was so important to connect people. Yeah, I'm a natural connector. It's always been a way of being. I got to know some of the board of New York Tech Meetup. And at the time, that was the biggest, most important tech meetup in the country. 
And their board said, Peter, you got to do this in DC. At the, living in DC at the time, the company was headquartered there. And I was like, guys, I already do so much. I throw these big happy hours for the tech industry. Thousands of people show up. I don't really, I don't think I can take on more. And they said, no, you can. It doesn't take that much time. I decided that I, in fact, like happy hour is one thing, right? That's networking. What we did need, what we did need was a big stage. And so that's what DC Tech Meetup became. For several years, every month, about a thousand people, sometimes over a thousand people would come out to see demos by early stage startups. The mayor would pop in, all the investors of the region would come, and it became this, a crucial drumbeat that creates a cadence for a community. And I'm very much a student and a teacher of the dynamics. And cadence is important. If anyone is spiritual in any way, listening to this, you understand, like, when you're Jewish or Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever, when Good Friday and Christmas and Easter, all those things are, there's a cadence to it and people yeah. can anticipate it and prepare for it and get excited about it and say, oh, I'll see you at the next one. So creating that cadence in the community was crucial. That ended up also leading to the creation of DC Week, which was a 10-day festival that we created that ultimately had about 12,000 people show up in year three. So it got a little crazy. Um, in a great way. And it was important for just, I wanted to stir the pot and we felt like the more friction, the more people that came friction in a good way, not bad way would occur, more sparks would fly, more fires would erupt in a fire being creation of a company. And that was the case. It proved itself. And speaking of that, the, the byproduct or the end product of DC week, the DC tech meetup, what were some of those nice happenstance serendipitous occasions where you said creating companies, investing in companies, advising companies. I'd love to hear some of those verbatims of the benefits mm. of, of, again, belonging to this vibrant community. Yeah. Wow. I can tell this story now because I guess the statute of limitations is probably up on it. I forget what year it was. It was 2011 or 12. So DC Week happened 2010, 11, and 12. And we booked Travis Kalanick, founder of a small startup at the time. I think Uber was in New York and San Francisco. So we had good relationship with someone that knew Travis. So we said, hey, can we get Travis to do a keynote on the future of mobility and startup thing and blah, blah, blah. And they were trying to open DC. I was like, okay. And I was on the mayor's technology advisory council helping shape the sort of economic policy agenda for the city to make it more startup friendly. And so I knew the mayor well, and I was going to have the mayor do a keynote. And I was like, hold on a second. So basically, we got the mayor and Travis to meet backstage, and let's just say Uber launched um, in D.C. without much of a hitch. I probably should have gotten stock for that, but yeah. anyway. <laughs> this yeah, so things like that happened. Things like that happened at D.C. Lee. Oh, wow. That's yeah. pretty amazing. And the other thing in terms of some of the, the output of the following, you building ISL into what it was and, and selling it, was you were also, didn't the U.N.? reach out to you for you to go around the world to speak at different events? Yeah, it was uh, the State Department. So the State Department, sorry. The State Department had a program called AIP. I, f I forget what it stands for. Government loves acronyms, right? Mm -hmm. And this was essentially their invited speakers program where luminaries from the United States would go to other jurisdictions. And I was honored to be considered that way. Ultimately, the the State Department brought me to, I think it was eight or nine countries. And when I would go, I'm doing, I'm doing keynotes at universities and high schools and 
meeting the local chamber of commerce or I met several several ambassadors and the president of those places. And I hope this doesn't sound too cynical, but effectively I was like a poster child for American capitalism, right? It's like I would show up in Turkey. So I'll tell you some of the countries. Egypt, during the Tahrir Square uprising, right? So literally during the revolution, I land. The revolution was in August. I land in September. Oh, wow. And the State Department was like, we need, will you go? No one will go. And I'm like, I'll go. I don't have a wife or kids and I'm, I love crazy shit. So let's do it. So I land in Egypt and go all over, all over that country, go to Turkmenistan, go to Botswana, which was incredible. Meeting the Bots, the Botswanans was really wonderful. And I still have friends there today who I met there. Myanmar. Wow. So going to these places that need the, and I, by the way, I went to Myanmar to teach journalists how to use privacy software in order not to get captured and arrested by the government for reporting on the Rohingya genocide. So I was like their pocket nerd who was like a tech savvy entrepreneur that they would bring to crazy places for various reasons. And I really loved it. It was a whole lot of fun. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And again, being this poster child for American capitalism, what did you learn about, again, yourself, again, being part of and being nominated to to represent the State Department in these different countries? Yeah, I learned that my business was very U.S. focused. I did have the Singapore government, the government of the Netherlands as clients, but mostly our work was North American. So I realized that I did have a sort of a value proposition for the rest of the world. And that was interesting, but it wasn't, it wasn't a commercial offering and it wasn't something I strategy lab was, was selling. It was Peter, which is great. So when I was on these trips, I got to not be the CEO of my strategy labs. And mind you, like over those years, the company was growing like crazy. I just got to go hang out with journalists in Myanmar and teach them how to be safe. Or I got to meet female entrepreneurs in Egypt who coming out of a revolution were starting to drop the burqa and feel like they could do that. And I'm in the middle of the room going, the future depends on you. That was wonderful. So I learned that about myself that I had something to offer outside of the kind of commercial context or, or the role of CEO. I also learned, well, it's not about, as I would say, is um, yeah, I've been to 85 countries now, and this is going to sound like propaganda. America is quote unquote, the greatest country in the world. Like it is like of all of the places I've been and I've spent a lot of time in a lot of places, like we've got it. And anytime I think an American starts to poo what's going on, whether it's just because of divisiveness in politics or otherwise, go to Myanmar and then tell me, go to Turkmenistan and tell me, or go to Kazakhstan. And these are, by the way, great places, not so much Turkmenistan. It's actually terrible and scary. We can talk about that, but, and you'll go, you know what? Yeah. The world is crumbling. I'm going to want to be in it. Yeah. The grass is never, you think the grass is greener on the other side, but it's really not because again, there's this American exceptionalism, not to say, not to say there are other, of course, I love traveling abroad and meeting new people and learning new cultures. Absolutely. I totally encourage. And it sounds like you totally encourage that. But when, when, again, when you come back to the U S and you really breathe in the gratitude for Mm. the ability to start anything. Again, if you have an idea. Yeah. And I should be more specific. It is the greatest country in the world for entrepreneurs. Okay. So it's not the greatest country in the world for low education, single mothers. That's probably Norway. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like having a social safety net greater than ours, like 
there are many places with that. But if you want to start a company, like it's clearly the U.S. still to this day, as far as I can tell. But in terms of you know, this other sort of quality of life. Metrics. Yeah, there are definitely other countries with better quality of life. I'll put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what it also sounds like, too, when you were traveling and representing the State Department and again, wearing the Peter hat, not the iStrategy Lab CEO hat. Did it also give you a vision of the future? I don't want to be tethered to one thing. I want to be able to work across many different mm -hmm. sort of, whether it's jobs or initiatives or startups or investment opportunities, like having that level of flexibility with whatever you wanted to pursue post ISL. No. No, okay. Surprisingly, no. I was so focused. I was like tunnel vision, building ISL. And in the early days, up until year seven, I never even thought of selling it. Like I just was going to build it the rest of my life. And we could talk about what changed. But um, so I wasn't like thinking of how do I keep my options open or find new ways of doing more. Yeah, it just, it, I know some people are that way. Maybe I'm, mo I'm much more actually that way now than I was maniacally focused. Maniacally focused and then as you're building, but yeah. once, once you went through your self-exploration and mm -hmm. post-acquisition, did, did, again, did that change that, that approach to anything that I start instead of being, again, my, my, I'm maniacally focused, should I have a little bit more breath in my vision? Yeah, but it's really more about, it remains to be about service. So mm -hmm. I just, I say I come when called. So a buddy of mine, I won't say who, landed his jet here in East Hampton last summer and was like, I really need your help. I was like, okay. So he came into our studio and I sat with him for four hours and talked about everything that was going on with the business. And, and that was it. And so I, it might sound passive, but I'm not actively trying to open new lanes of opportunity. I'm not actively putting pokers in the fire. I think I see myself as the fire that people are putting pokers in. And I've only just now thought of it that way. So I stay focused on stoking this fire. That requires Zen practice, good food, a great relationship with my wife. That, take, that takes a lot of work. And it takes intellectual curiosity, which is definitely, if that's part of this, like keeping things open, maybe. But And so I'm this stoked fire. And when someone goes, hey, I want to put a poker in, I'm like, great or no yeah and it's funny and i know we're running up on time but what's amazing is again it goes back to the core value or the platform which is being of service to others mm -hmm. but what's also and i've been having some of these revelations of things that people have said to me in the past that didn't really make sense at the time but now that i'm having these conversations like you and i are having that thing is now really resonating so when you're saying i'm letting go i'm letting opportunity come to me it goes back to a conversation I had right after college with my cousin about letting go, about not overstressing, about having faith in a higher being, which is just unbelievable. Now that as we're talking about it, it's again, it's manifesting. It's, it's more palpable than what, what it was a, a more abstract 15 years ago, let's say, which mm -hmm. I think is, which I think is amazing. I think it takes a lot to have faith in yourself. Can you have faith in yourself? Can you trust in yourself that any of the intellectual curiosity you have, any of the holding back or saying no or stoking your own fire is going to, quote unquote, going to pay off? Like that takes a lot of trust in yourself because our culture tells us 
No, you got to go out. And I see a lot of people that spread themselves way too thin doing that. Yeah, this is also maybe a continuation of this maniacal focus that I had previously in the ISL context. And now it's like I'm building a Peter that people can access, but it's less of like me going out and trying to go grab something. Because again, if you're grabbing the wrong thing or if you're spreading yourself too thin, that there, there's, where's the happiness? Where's the... Sure. Yeah. Is the pursuit worthwhile? Whereas again, you're beautifully articulating the platform, which is being of service to others. And again, having that trust, being your number one fan of Peter and again, being able to soak that fire and also having the ability to say no. Some people misconstrue no as no what? No is a complete sentence. Yeah, I, I think, it is. So I, I think that's, that's, that's absolutely amazing. Peter, I really do appreciate your time, insight, and the perspective that you've shared with both me and the listeners. What I'm going to do once I share the episode is include a link, perhaps to your LinkedIn profile or website. And if anyone is interested in learning more about you, they can go to either of those links. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Take care. All right. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast on your favorite listening platform or subscribe to the show Substack so you never miss an episode.